Today's podcast is sponsored by Free Trade, the UK commission-free investing platform. Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. The American economy is booming, yet much of the world is struggling. The UK and Japan slipped into recession at the end of 2023, and growth remains weak in Europe and China. But an economic downturn doesn't have to spell disaster for our investments. I want to know if the slump will be short-lived and which assets might perform well. And in today's dumb question of the week, what's the difference between a recession and a depression? All right, let's get into it. So, Romin, the hopes of a soft landing just went up in smoke in the UK. <laughs> what do you make of it? We're in recession. Look, what you're trying to avoid is not plowing into the ground into a flaming pile of wreckage. And that's not what's happened. What we have seen is kind of like a bird landing on a lake. It's just kind of gradually dipping its feet into the water and decelerating and kind of hovering around a growth rate of zero. Yeah, the trouble is that lake is full of stagnant water and the fish are not happy. (laughs) (laughs) But look, who would have predicted that inflation would have come down so painlessly, clearly in the US, but also in the UK? We haven't had a big recession, and the US has avoided recession altogether. And I think that's a win. So you think it's just a bit meaningless then to say we're in recession now? Well, it's just that, you know, the difference between growth of 0.01% and contraction of minus 0.01% isn't huge. By definition, it's just kind of teetering on the edge of positive or negative. And we knew that was coming. If you look at the growth forecast from the Bank of England, for example, Their fan charts are just kind of centred around zero for the next three years, their outlook. And it's all within the margin of error, really, isn't it? That's the point we should make, that these are the initial figures, and they could well be revised away. They often are. And uh, yeah, that's statistics for you. You know, economic statistics is just a very inexact science. But it would take a pretty big revision to get rid of the recession altogether. So UK GDP fell by 0.3% in the fourth quarter of last year. And it's not often that you get a revision bigger than 0.3%. If we were to avoid recession retrospectively, it would probably be Q3 that had to be revised because that was only a 0.1% fall. So maybe that's where the hope lies for the government if they want to go into election and say, no, there was no recession. Yeah, and I think one of the worrying things about it was that it was broad-based. It wasn't just in one sector. It was for services, it was for manufacturing, and if you look at construction as well. And it was a deeper fall than. I think most economists had predicted they'd expected growth to be flat or maybe 0.1% down. And that doesn't usually sit well. And I think one of the points that we made in the newsletter was that this is more of a politically significant change rather than an economically significant one. Yeah, the narrative isn't good when you're a politician and the economy is falling. I mean, I think it's probably more accurate to describe the UK economy as being stagnant rather than in recession. I mean, it is technically a recession, but if you look at 2023 as a whole, UK GDP increased very, very slightly by 0.1% across the full year. Now that is a long way short of America, which was 2.5%, so pretty healthy growth there. And we are still below the Eurozone as well, which was a 0.5% growth level. But if we put it in concrete terms, the reason why people don't like a recession is because you lose your job if it's really bad. And I think unemployment is still very low. It has increased quite a bit from its all-time low, but it's still relatively low compared to the last few decades. 
So I think from that point of view, people still feel secure in their jobs. And if you go out into the shops at the weekend, there are still people going out and buying stuff. It's not the case that, you know, there's tumbleweed blowing through the streets <laughs> and the streets are on fire. It's really not like that. Well, you say that, but in the fourth quarter of last year, retail sales, so what are people spending in the economy, they actually had a record fall of minus 3.3% in December, which is unusual because people usually spend a lot in December, but maybe they pulled forward their consumption to Black Friday in November. But we have seen a bounce back now in January, so retail sales were up 3.4%, which just offsets really that December fall. So it's not the case that the economy is booming in the shops. Oh, and this is an interesting thing. Can I bring in a kind of nerdy stats thing about seasonal adjustment? I mean, I want to say no, but I'm going to have to say yes, aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just that, you know, when you have seasonal adjustments in these numbers, then you have to base the seasonal adjustment on what happened in the past. And if there's a new phenomenon, which is seasonal, like Black Friday, then you're not going to be able to adjust in the right way. So in future, I think these models will learn about Black Friday and adjust for the movement in consumption in order to make the best of those sales. This is the problem when we import cultural phenomenon from America. It screws up all our stats. <laughs> you know, things like Halloween as a kid, it was just a non-event. And now it's just a huge thing. God damn it, Roman! In my household, Halloween is still a non-event. <laughs> my daughter is never going to get to celebrate that holiday. I just remember hoovering and all of the kind of hair off these witches' hats used to clog up the hoover. I remember that. But now I just hide in the house, so we don't put a pumpkin in the window, and I just switch the lights off and pretend I'm not here. She wanted to go as a witch to her nursery on the day, and we didn't have a broomstick, so I just sent her with a dustpan and brush. She was just like a little cleaner. (laughs) (laughs) There'll be therapy for years, Michael. You're going to have to pay for that. What was weird about last week in the UK is that the Office for National Statistics kind of had a bumper week. They released all this data, so GDP retail sales, but also inflation and wages. So if we look at inflation, the thing that everyone cares about, the CPI actually held steady at 4% inflation, so still double the Bank of England's targets, but below forecast. So actually economists were expecting a bit of a tick up and that didn't happen. Core CPI remained steady at 5.1%. So we've kind of stuck where we were. We're not going up or down. Now, I think it is true that the easy wins, which is the huge surge in energy prices, have now gone into reverse almost everywhere. And that benefit, that disinflationary force, which pulls down the rate of inflation, that's kind of ebbed. So the quick wins are gone now. And it's really services which are just keeping things sticky. Yeah, services inflation actually ticked up a little bit to 6.5%. So that is still really high. Now, the service component is very much driven by wage growth. And until wage growth comes down, there's not going to be that breakage of the last bastion of inflation. And if we look at the latest stats for wage growth in the UK, it was up 6.2% year on year, and that's excluding bonuses. Now, previously it was 6.7%, so it is falling, the rate of growth of wages. And in real terms, it was rising by just under 2%. But the problem is that that's not consistent with inflation at 2%. So I think that's going to be the problem that isn't going to go away quickly. People have to get out of this mindset. They've kind of anchored on high wage growth, and that's not going to be around forever. I think April is actually a key month here. 
because that's when a lot of the indexation happens and the living wage gets bumped up. Some people get pay rises, pensions go up. So both for wages and inflation, I think the Bank of England's probably going to look to the figures in May to see what's happened with this year-end effect. And I was just looking at the top 10 items for monthly inflation, and this is published by NISA, the National Institute for Economic and Social Research. And the top item is cream liqueur, which is up by 25% year on year. Second highest, smart speakers, up by 19%. And the one which horrified me, premium potato crisps, 15.4%. It's going to bankrupt me. Cheesy what's it? How are you going to get through your Fed live streams without hard liquor and what's-its? Well, not so much the liquor. I stick to the what's-its. If you're a bit sloshed during one of the live streams, I think people would notice. <laughs> at least I, I hope they would. One other thing to note, if you look at this NISA inflation report, this is the one that they've done in February, is that they say there's a special factor, which is that in April, there's likely to be a fall in the off-gen price cap, because in the UK we have this weird way of paying for energy. And that's going to result in a downward push of 0.65 percentage points. And there's going to be the dropout of the April 2023 increase in the price cap. So it might push us down to almost 3% then as an inflation level? Yeah, I mean, overall, they say that's going to reduce inflation by 1.2 percentage points. So we're creeping towards the 2% target, aren't we? Yeah, I think so. And I think we will get there. And the Bank of England's going to be slammed because they're not cutting rates fast enough, probably. I mean, how would you summarise the UK economic picture? We're in a recession, hopefully a shallow one. So growth is poor, obviously. Inflation is coming down quite fast now, but services remain a worry. Wage growth is really strong. Retail sales are bumpy and patchy. I think that's a fair summary. I think that at the moment things are actually picking up because we're not going to have this situation where people are suffering from high prices for a long period of time, at least not from now onwards. Wage growth is still relatively high for most people. So overall, I think people will feel pretty good about things. The price increases which we've seen have slowed down. Things in the supermarket won't go down to their previous low prices. They'll stay at these high prices. But overall, as long as unemployment doesn't pick up too much, I think the feeling will be pretty positive for the average person. It's interesting you mentioned the supermarket, and things do appear to be turning around. So food prices actually fell by 0.4% in January. And if you want more good news, overall prices declined by 0.6% in the month of January. So you don't see that when you look at the annualised figures, but CPI is actually in deflation on a month-on-month basis. One of the things that it's good to look out for if you are looking for a turnaround in the economy is the market PMI indices, now the S&P PMI indices. And they break it down by country. And they also break it down by services and manufacturing. And the services one for the UK, which is so important, says the revival in the UK service sector performance gained momentum at the start of 2024, with output growth accelerating to its fastest for eight months amid stronger business and consumer spending. So new orders have rebounded since the winter and recession risks are receding. At least that's what they say in the report. So this is the purchasing managers indices, the kind of upstream effect on prices. That's right. So really, I think we're seeing this shock work its way through the system. And we're just going back to situation normal, which is not particularly high growth. Yeah. 
The thing that really stood out to me in the GDP figures, at a headline basis, yeah, growth is slightly negative from a recession. But if you adjust for population, which we know has been growing fast because of high immigration, things do look quite a bit worse. So there's something called GDP per capita, which is, as you expect, output per head in the population. And that actually contracted 0.7% across 2023, which is a big fall. And it fell in every quarter, in fact. So it's telling a bit of a bleaker picture than the headline GDP numbers. And GDP per head in the UK actually remains over 1% below pre-pandemic levels, which is in contrast to the EU, where it's almost 3% higher, and the US, where it's 6% higher. So I think when you start digging into the sort of per population numbers, it doesn't look quite so good for us. Yeah, our economy is not a productive one. At least it's not growing in terms of productivity. And that's been a problem for a long time. And I don't think there's an easy solution for that. Effectively, what you've got to do is have people earn more. And that's not an easy thing to turn around quickly. Where are the greatest salaries at the moment? Well, probably in things like tech. And unfortunately, that's a sector where we don't dominate globally. If you look at the pay for UK tech people, coders, for example, apparently it's much lower than it would be for an equivalent job in the United States. Oh, yeah. The best demonstration of this I saw was a kind of viral tweet where it was comparing US wages with the UK. And it was looking at a sign posted on a window from something called Bucky's in America. And it was advertising for a car wash manager with an annual salary of $125,000 plus, <laughs> which if you compare it to UK wages, is kind of insane. And that's in Alabama. That's one of the poorest states in America. So I think that's kind of putting things in context. Tech is kind of similar in the UK where people are paid less than they would be for the US. So, you know, I think productivity growth is partly about valuing people who've got certain qualifications, but also encouraging people to take up those occupations. Now, ultimately, that's a cultural thing, whether people choose to go into those careers you know, it's just a matter of what's cool for kids to do, I think. That's partly what drives them into certain careers. But it's also a matter of ability and education. I think that might be overstating the labour supply effects. And I don't think it's the people that are doing the wrong degrees or whatever, or at least not entirely. I think it's more the fact that British companies have underinvested in ways to improve productivity. There's not been a lot of capex spending. Business models have not really evolved. And we've not seen a lot of automation. I think that's a good point, actually. You know, the demand side of labour is also very important. And I always refer to John Byrne Murdoch when I'm talking about economic stats. But he did a great thread on X Twitter, where he was talking about the graduate wage premium in the UK and how it's been shrinking over time. So since 1997, the premiums shrunk from about 50% more per hour wages to 40% more. And part of that's the obvious increase in supply of graduates. More people are now going to university. But if you break it down by region, London has the same graduate wage premium that it did in 1997. If you exclude London, that's where it's pretty much collapsed, the wage premium. The most interesting graph he shared to me was that if you compare Britain and America, non-graduates in Britain earn roughly the same amount as people in the US. But when you look at people who went to university, US graduates earn far more than British graduates. That's where the real difference is. It's in the top tier of earners. It's just in another sphere in the US. 
Yeah, if we're looking at San Francisco, for example, the graduate wage premium is something like 70%. And the graduate share of the workforce is about 60%. So very high. So I think part of the problem is not valuing people with very high educational attainments and not having the kind of industry which demands those workers. I think if we had more of a tech industry in the UK, there would be a bigger demand for that kind of person and productivity growth would increase as a result. I know a lot of people put the blame at the feet of management and say that in the UK, we just don't train our managers well enough at companies and they're not adept at innovating business models. And people have pointed to Japan and said, you know, that has been their problem for a long time, as well as obviously demographics and things like that. And actually, last week as well, Japan announced that it was in recession. Unexpectedly, actually, its GDP fell by 0.4% year on year in Q4. And that follows a 3.3% slump in Q3. The market was actually forecasting a 1.4% expansion. So it's quite a surprise. Given that their monetary policy is still so accommodative, which is completely at odds with every other central bank globally, that is surprising. And it makes you wonder if they do start to be more restrictive in their policy, what's going to happen to growth then? It's going to be a problem again. It's going to be delayed again. They're not going to hike rates right now. And given the debt mountain, it would be a real problem. I think that's going to really become a problem for the Japanese government to service it. It's interesting that when you do that GDP per capita thing, that actually helps Japan because their population declined by 800,000 people in 2022, the 14th consecutive year of contraction. So when you do it per head, it looks better than it does in the UK. But I guess they still have a very effective manufacturing set of industries and they have invested in automation. They have. And that's definitely helped them. So, you know, maybe that's going to give us an example of how we might be able to go in the future. Certainly when you look at the stock markets, for two countries in recession, theirs has been performing a lot better than ours recently. So if you look at the performance of the FTSE 100 and the Nikkei 225, since February 2019, the Japanese stock market is up almost 80% as we record this, whereas the FTSE 100 is basically flat, you know, it's up 5%. I guess that's partly a European thing. European markets have just done not very well. And Japan's done incredibly well. I think that's partly because of the monetary policy. You know, if it has been accommodative, that's going to help the yen stay weak. And that's good for Japanese exports as well. And Japan's finally started to become a bit more shareholder friendly and listen to what shareholders are saying about their companies. Whereas Britain, maybe we're going the other way a bit. We're loosening the rules for stock listings and things like that. Desperate to get companies to list here, but (laughs) weakening shareholder voices. Deregulation. Always so tempting. Today's podcast is sponsored by Free Trade, the UK commission-free investing platform. Free Trade has recently launched a revolutionary product UK Treasury bills, and it's only available on their platform for the UK market. What are Treasury bills, you may ask? These are short-term debt instruments similar to gilts. They're backed by the UK government, which makes them a safer alternative to other assets. And with central bank interest rates this high, these currently offer competitive returns. Get direct access to one-month UK Treasury bills and earn annualised returns of 5% or more with free trade. And right now, Free Trade is offering UK Treasury bills fee-free until April 2024. Head over to freetrade.io slash treasurybills to get started today. Rate subject to success in tender. 
the rate changes at every weekly tender, forecast is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Capital is at risk, other charges may apply. So the UK's in recession, Japan's in recession. The Eurozone is not quite in recession. It's expanding, barely, but it is growing, though not evenly. Germany's economy contracted 0.3% across 2023. Yep, France is feeling smug. So that's a large part of developed markets which are in recession. The US is doing well, but not a lot else in developed markets. What about China? That's the other big player here on the global stage. Officially, they're not in recession, not even close to it. They're growing at 5% per year. (laughs) When I said we were going to talk about China and recession today, Ramin, I kind of said I was a bit sceptical of those numbers. You were dismissive. You thought, no, there's no recession in China. Well, for them, a recession would be pretty shocking, very shocking. When we were talking about growth below 5% just five years ago, that would have been a hard landing. And that was a tail risk, as many people priced it into markets. But look at what's happened. And the Chinese market has essentially imploded the stock market without leaving a ripple elsewhere in the world. But certainly in terms of the economic growth, yeah, I think it's been a choppy period, no question. Usually I look at copper prices to give me a read on that, because they are very copper intensive in China, their economy. So this is to verify the official stats, you reckon? Well, yeah, I mean, if there's a big disconnect, you always think, well, there's something not quite right there. There is some censoring, and I think manipulation of the stats probably So if I look at the year-on-year copper price change, at the moment it's about 9% down on a year ago, maybe 10%. And I built a kind of toy regression model based on -on year-on-year GDP and year-on-year copper price changes. And even if it's going to be a 10% fall in the price of copper, historically the growth rate in China has been pretty good. But the problem is that historically China's growth rate has been very high. It's been between 7% and 10% over the last 30 years. And what we're seeing is gradually it's falling to developed market rates of growth. I don't believe the figures, right? 5% growth, I think that's nonsense. Like, Let me do a little list for you of what's happening in China. And you can tell me if this sounds like a recession or not. So unemployment is increasing. The government, in fact, stopped reporting the youth unemployment rate last (laughs) June because it rose to more than 21%. And as high as 40% in rural regions. And then, you know, just before Christmas, they came back and said, well, we've reworked the figures. It's now 14% youth unemployment. Okay, China. Consumer spending is falling dramatically. Foreign direct investment has gone negative for the first time in Chinese modern history. There's rampant capital flight. Like Chinese people are trying to move their money overseas. But they can't. In October, they announced an emergency expansion of the fiscal deficit. So they had to borrow more money to keep the government ticking over. We've seen asset price collapses. Obviously, the stock market, as you mentioned, has fallen hugely. The value of housing has also fallen hugely. And they've got deflation. Like, (laughs) this is a recession, surely. How can it not be a recession with all that stuff going on? If their normal rate of growth was around 3%, as it is in developed markets, then all of that could happen without taking out growth. But my guess is that all that's going to do is take it down to roughly flat zero GDP growth, or maybe slightly negative. All right, comrade. You're saying this is recession with Chinese characteristics, is what you're saying. (laughs) Little joke for people who follow Xi Jinping's work there. Yeah. But either way, China's struggling, right? Even if it's technically not a recession, it's not doing as well as it historically has done. Yeah. 
So it's always worth looking at some projections from a third party. And in this case, the World Economic Outlook is pretty useful. It doesn't forecast accurately, but it gives you a gist of what they expect to happen. And this is produced by the IMF. So for China, they're forecasting 4.6% growth in 2024 and 4.1% for 2025. Now, for China, that's not great. Usually, you'd expect over 5% growth. So is it a full-blown recession? I doubt it. But the truth is, we'll never know. We'll never be able to tell what the true level of growth is. But you look at other countries in EM, like India, and it's powering ahead. You know, 2023 growth, 27 2024, 6.5, 2025, 6.5 again. So maybe this is just catch up and there's an opportunity here for EM to catch up in terms of living standards to the rest of the world. That's also a trend that we've been seeing globally for some time. It's certainly not a global recession, is it? There's just localised pockets of recession. UK, Europe's on the verge, Japan, maybe China. But then, as you say, there's large parts of the world which are doing fine. And obviously the US is doing unbelievably well, given what it's come through and how far rates have come up. So it's certainly not true that all of Europe, all of developed markets are in a really bad state. But it is generally not looking good, you're right. I think if all of developed markets were doing as well as the US, then we would be in a no-landing scenario. Inflation wouldn't be coming down as strongly as it has. Like, if the whole world was growing at sort of a US 4 or 5% level, <laughs> the prices aren't going to come under control, are they? That's true. In, in that sense, it's not such a bad thing that we've got this period of fairly low growth. It will get prices to come down as demand is, is fairly weak in developed markets. So what's the upshot of all of this for our investments then? I think for investors in the UK... It's not necessarily a bad thing if you are a global investor, because if we do have weak growth in the UK relative to the US, that tends to weaken sterling and that'll increase the value of your US investments. If you're investing domestically in the UK, not so good, because those companies are going to be earning their revenues in an economy which is kind of moribund. That's not going to help you. And I've got a small cap overweight in the UK, so I'm, I'm pretty worried about that. So I am talking my own book here when I'm optimistic. I mean, some people say when you look at history, the stock market tends to bottom out before a recession has actually been officially declared and recover while the recession's still underway. So maybe now is a good time to get into the UK. And that was part of my thinking. If the UK is in a bad state economically, that's usually a good time to invest because there will be a rebound of some form. So that's why I didn't really worry about the UK recession. It was shallow and inflation was coming down and things aren't that bad and valuations are just crazily low in the UK. And people think there's a much stronger relationship between GDP growth and stock returns than there is. It's really not predictive. Not at all, because it's backward looking for starters. So you would expect if there is a lag to get GDP numbers, then you would expect forward looking equity markets to kind of be out of sync with what GDP does. And there is a weak negative correlation, I believe. There was a paper from MSCI in 2010, which made the point that developed markets that had had weaker GDP growth had actually seen stronger equity returns. Whether that still holds up today, I don't know, because the US has actually done better than us on both measures, right? But looking beyond the stock market, what about bonds then, government bonds? If you're an investor in those, what do you need to be aware of right now? 
Well, remember that for bonds, it's the opposite of stocks. Economic weakness is good for bonds because it pushes down long-term yields and it pushes up prices of bonds. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that UK growth is going to be weak. Unfortunately, inflation pushes the other way. It pushes yields up. The environment I'm seeing is one in which inflation's falling, good for bonds. Growth is weak, good for bonds. So, you know, maybe it's not a bad time to go a bit further out on the yield curve. Unfortunately, at the moment, the yields that we're seeing are just not particularly tempting. All of the juice is at the short end. And of course, that's where the Bank of England's going to be cutting eventually. But it will take a while, I think. So for, for the time being anyway, I'm at the very short end of the curve. I've got a money market fund. I think I've got one inflation link guilt left that hasn't matured. But then once the rates start to fall, I'll probably move further out on the yield curve and take a bit more duration risk. Usual warning, though. Bonds return less than stocks, so I wouldn't put too much into bonds ever. It's just if you need the safety or you're just weird and you like bonds like me. And the other point is global diversification becomes really important, doesn't it, when you've got this uneven growth picture across the world and also so many elections this year that, you know, things could become a bit more volatile in the second half of 2024. Is there any chance of a US recession? You know, we've got it in the UK, we've got it in Japan doesn't seem to be showing up in US data. Yeah, I think in the US, unemployment's the really good predictor. If you try and build a SARM-type model, a Claudia SARM-type model, which looks at the increase in unemployment rate, in the US, it works flawlessly going back decades. In the UK, it just doesn't work. So at the moment, unemployment in the US remains very low. It's not picking up much. And while that remains the case, then no, I can't really see a US recession in the offing at all. Our unemployment hasn't picked up. Although it is forecast to, the Bank of England said it's not going to peak at a rate which is as high as they previously thought, but it's still expected to increase. So from the February 2024 monetary policy report, they expect unemployment to peak at around 4.9%, and that's going to be in Q1 of 2026. Currently, we're around 44 And then GDP will just be dragging along at 0.5% for 2025, 0.8% for 2026, and one5 for 2027. So a long time for it to really pick up. And that's pretty weak growth anyway. And that's just their central case, right? Yeah. And there are some big error bars around that, of course. I mean, I guess if that is correct, and we have this kind of shallow recession, and then growth is just weak for a bit in the UK doesn't really matter if we're a globally diversified investor that much. The big deal is the US, right? That's a huge part of global markets. And that's doing so well right now. Yeah, I think that's true. My big worry is that we've just suffered a big shock to the economic system globally with the pandemic. And we're all kind of suffering from that, from the after effects, which was a high inflation period. I think if we get another shock now, the weaker economies are going to suffer even more. And here I am thinking about the UK, but also China, which is now so important systemically. So if there is another shock, an energy shock, some other kind of exogenous shock, it could be another Trump presidency. It could be geopolitical. And these are unpredictable. And if there is such a shock, I think it's going to be much worse than it would have been if we would have had a longer period to recover. So that's my big worry at the moment. I mean, maybe the takeaway for the UK market is that it's priced in, right? The recession was bad news. It ran across headlines last week. But UK stocks are very cheap when you compare to other countries around the world. So, yeah. 
the news is bad and the market's bad. I kind of agree with that. I think if GDP collapses, you know, it's really deep and negative, or it surges, if it's very high and positive, that really affects markets because that feeds into profits, either positively or negatively. But when we're just seeing tepid growth, I don't think it's going to make a huge difference. And at the margin, I think it's actually good for UK investors if they're internationally diversified. Now, the relationship between economics and investing is often one which is fairly tenuous and not always obvious. And it's something we discuss quite often. So if you want to learn more about that and discuss it with other members of our community, you can do that by going to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what is the difference between a recession and a depression? The standard joke is that a recession is when someone else loses their job and a depression is when you lose yours, which is kind of true as well, because a depression is when there's really, really deep negative growth. Typically, people are talking about the 1929 Great Depression, which lasted for about a decade after that. And it was fairly unprecedented in terms of its geographic spread, but also its depth. If you look at markets, for example, and the crashes in the stock market around that period, there's never been anything like it since. Yeah, US stocks fell by 90%, more or less. Because I was looking for, is there a technical definition of when a recession becomes a depression? And there kind of isn't. It's just a depression is a really bad recession that's widespread, maybe, around the world. And I think what characterized the Great Depression and made it a bit different from everything else is we had a long period of deflation, which was very unusual. It is very unusual. If you imagine those four quadrants with growth on the x-axis, recession on the left, negative growth, and then inflation on the y-axis. So normal inflation would be positive. That's where we are most of the time. And then deflation would be if you're in the negative quadrant. What's really unusual is a recessionary period of deflation. We really don't spend much time in that bottom left-hand quadrant. Most of the time we're in the top right quadrant, which is good. I mean, when we talk about a difference in scale between a recession and a depression, maybe let's put some figures on that. So we said the UK is in recession because growth is negative by like minus 0.3%. Would you go back to the Great Depression between 1929 and 1933 in America, a four-year period, real GDP fell by 30%. <laughs> it's just on a whole different scale, right? That is a huge contraction. And you feel that in your everyday life. And maybe one of the things that stopped it happening again was that there was a whole generation of economists who lived through it and lived through the suffering that resulted from it and then vowed never to let that happen again. And a whole spate of policies were later enacted in order to avoid it happening again. I mean, you should be able to avoid deflation quite easily, right? By loosening monetary policy. And if it comes to it, printing money and giving it to people. Yeah. And, and the whole monetary system changed since we had the Great Depression. You know, we don't have a gold standard anymore. So we can do that. We can print money and certainly ease some of these effects. And you can get the government to spend money and try and stimulate the economy that way. So I think that in 2007, 2008, when the global financial crisis was happening, we came quite close to the brink, closer than I think many people realise. It was just when there was coordinated action 
from the US authorities, which I think kind of saved us from going into a second Great Depression. If they hadn't stepped in with that troubled asset relief program and bailed out the banks, the world, I think, could look very different now. Yeah, I'm just reading a book now which touches on the history of the Fed. And they talk about that. They say, look, with JP Morgan, he essentially was a private investor that bailed out the banks. And this was something that people thought, well, that's not so great, is it? We should have public institutions that do this. And that led to the creation of the central bank in the US and expansion of its powers to be a lender of last resort. Whereas previously, that just wasn't there. There was no safety net whatsoever. And the consequences for just everyday life are severe if you get into a depression. So in the Great Depression in the early 1930s, in America, the unemployment rate rose from 3% to 25%. It's weird. When I lived in LA, I had a hypnotherapist because it was kind of cool at the time. And uh, obviously I was a screwed up kid and I just couldn't take it seriously. You know, I, I'm convinced he couldn't hypnotise me. I just, I'm not a hypnotisable person. I don't think hypnotism's real, but carry on. But anyway, he, he, you know, was kind of like, I kind of humoured him. But he was really interesting because he'd lived through the depression. He was quite an old guy and this was in the 80s. But his stories about how awful it was just beggared belief. He literally went hungry in the US as a kid. You know, they didn't have enough to buy food and it wasn't guaranteed they'd eat any given day. And that's unthinkable now in the US. Oh yeah, demand just collapsed because people couldn't afford it, even though prices were falling at 10% per year. It's just a nightmare economic scenario, isn't it? And it was only really the Second World War which turned the tide finally. I guess the thing with the Great Depression as an investor was that it was so bad for equity. Like you got your stock returns crushed and, you know, you wouldn't recover for decades. It just makes us wonder, is it a real one-off event? Like, did economists learn their lesson? We've got central banks now who can stop that happening again. Or is it a real risk? Because we have recessions, which are kind of part of the business cycle. At the end of the cycle, we get a small contraction and then we come out of it stronger. But could we have one where we don't come out of it stronger? I think it's possible. And I think many of the ones which we fabricate ourselves due to having leverage bubbles where we inflate asset prices and then they collapse, the business cycle as you described it, I think those are less likely to lead to these disastrous outcomes. The ones which could still lead to these disastrous outcomes would be natural phenomena. And there you can't control it. You know, if there was a really awful thing that happened and the human environment became much more toxic, then that would be a problem, right? It's going to be reflected in the economics, but just our daily living standards would just get much worse as we struggle to survive. Really, we haven't seen one of those over recent years, over the recent centuries, in fact. I mean, that's obviously one way to get it, just a real black swan asteroid pandemic thing. But that wasn't what caused the Great Depression. It was a massive asset bubble and leverage and how that unwound and the sort of doom loop which came out of that. Could we not see something like that happening? Does it have to be an act of God? When I look at politics, it just seems that there's so much irrationality out there and huge polarisation. Also, some of the horrors that we've seen in the past seem more likely now. And I never thought I'd live to see that. I generally thought I'd see things improve. I think if globalisation really did go into reverse, 
given how reliant we are on China, mutually reliant, a real strong decoupling could cause something a bit like this, or at least set the scene where it could happen. And global war would now be so much more painful because of those interlinks between economies in the East and the West. If those broke down, like you say, I think that would be a huge problem. And living standards would suffer for a long time. Here we're talking about a generation, I suspect. But let's hope not. Yeah, I mean, usually things are fine. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.